My name's Alicia, and it's my privilege to read the scripture this morning from James 5, 1 through 6. Look here, you rich people. Weep and groan with anguish because of all the terrible troubles ahead of you. Your wealth is rotting away, and your fine clothes are moth-eaten rags. Your gold and silver are corroded. The very wealth you were counting on will eat away your flesh like fire. This corroded treasure you have hoarded will testify against you on the day of judgment. For listen, hear the cries of the field workers whom you have cheated of their pay. The cries of those who harvest your fields have reached the ears of the Lord of heaven's armies. You have spent your years on earth in luxury, satisfying your every desire. You have fattened yourself for the day of slaughter. You have condemned and killed innocent people who do not resist you. Thanks, Alicia. You may be seated. Well, good morning. My name's Gabe. I'm one of the pastors here, and um, it's my joy to uh, teach God's Word this morning. And um, today's a hard passage. It really is um, for, for many reasons. And um, I'm just acknowledging that uh, I'm aware of that. <laughs> it was a hard passage for me to read and sit with, you know, um, sitting my home in a nice suburban neighborhood with the striped lawn and all that, um, reading a passage all week, uh, warning us about um, the trappings of wealth and of riches. And um, I don't know that many of us would like think of ourselves as rich or wealthy people, um, but you know, we live in a culture where uh, wealth and, and, and to be rich is something to be celebrated. And so we're going to look today uh, at what God has to say about rich, what his story kind of says um, about the place of, of wealth and the accumulation of things in our, in our life and how that really contrasts with the story of the world. And, you know, as I was thinking about this, there's so much I could share from my, my own journey and my own life because this is something that um, I've, I epically struggle with. Um, so I just want to acknowledge that today. And uh, it's okay if you do too. <laughs> um, but I was thinking about this and I was thinking of a time in my life. Uh, I was younger. I was in my 20s and just, you know, a little bit of my story. Um, haven't always been a pastor. Uh, I was actually a soldier uh, for eight years. I was an active duty infantry officer. And kind of at the conclusion of, of my time of service, um, I was in Mosul, Iraq, um, early in, in the conflict there in 2003, 2004. And uh, for a year, I lived in, you know, looking back, what was a really miserable existence. Um, you know, it was a very hellacious existence for that year to be in uh, armed conflict um, for, for that amount of time. And, you know, you could characterize that experience in many ways, but a word I've thought of is, is the word deprivation, is that you're really deprived of, of like, every possible comfort in life in a situation like that. Um, you, you know, you do without shelter, you do without um, hot food, um, you certainly do without uh, the, the comfort of security um, as your, you know, life is threatened on a daily basis. And so coming out of that period of my life, um, I actually discerned when I, was, when I was in Iraq that I wanted to be a pastor. That's a different story for a different day. But I had a friend come alongside of me, and he actually wasn't a Christ follower, but he really loved me, and he was very, like, just a wise person. Maybe you've had people like that in your life that even though they don't know the Lord, they're just wise. 
um, and able to speak wisdom into your life. And so um, my friend Brent actually said, you know, I, I don't think you should go be a pastor just yet. I think you should take like one last assignment in the army to kind of process all that we've experienced in this year of deprivation. And so an opportunity uh, opened up for me to take a position teaching Army ROTC at Clemson University. And so that's the way I finished out my my army career. And so my wife, Janet, and I, we didn't have Madeline yet. Uh, we moved from Fort Lewis in the Seattle area all the way down to Clemson, South Carolina, go Tigers. And I'd like to point out that I was a Tigers fan in the Bowden era um, before Dabo so and all that. Um, but it's a delight to see them actually thrive as a football team now. Um, and so we moved to Clemson and we actually bought a uh, a lakefront condominium, which was fantastic, but we were, were the only people who lived on the lake full time. Uh, so the rest of the condominiums were actually really wealthy people, and it was like their second home, because um, that's how dedicated Clemson Tiger fans are um, to football, as they buy houses just to go watch uh, football several times a year. And, um, and so it was a fantastic place to live, but we had this shared dock. And so every morning I would wake up and I would look out at this dock and these people had amazing boats. I mean, they had these cruisers that were brand new that had like kitchens and bedrooms and, you know, they could, they could like go and live on the lake if they wanted to. And so every morning I, I remember looking out uh, at these beautiful boats of wealthy people around me and guess what happened? I started wanting a boat <laughs> really, really bad. And, um, and so I started buying Boat Trader magazine. This was in the days before, um, you know, there was a ton of ways to look at stuff like that on the internet. You didn't have Facebook Marketplace and, and things like that. So I, I started buying Boat Trader magazine like several times a week and I would leaf through it. And my wife, Janet, said, you know, if you spend any more money on Boat Trader magazine, you're not gonna have any money left for a boat. Um, and so I became really fixated on this objective. And it really, to be honest, it began to consume my life um, in, in, a, in a way. And that sounds crazy, but it, it occupied every free thought because, you know, looking back, what I was longing for was to numb the pain of the year before. You know, I had this circumstance in my life where I'd lived without, where I'd suffered, uh, where I honestly, I didn't know how to process the things that had happened to me. And I saw something that was an image of a better life. It was like, uh, you know what, if I could just have a boat, then, you know, somehow that would make my life better. Somehow that would alleviate some of the pain and suffering um, that I was feeling. And I don't know if you've ever had that experience before. Uh, I don't know your story, but, you know, we all have stories of deprivation. We all have stories of, of things that we wish wouldn't have happened to us in our life. And we all have coping mechanisms, ways of dealing, you know, with our pain and with the things that have gone wrong in life. And, and maybe like me, some of you have been tempted at different parts of your life to cover that um, with materialism. And that's really what our passage is, is about today. And so I long for this boat. I finally found an appropriate boat in Boat Trader Magazine. We went to see it. Um, I was, I was going to get it, but my wife, Janet, being a very wise woman and knowing my heart, she said, hey, I'll, I just want you to sleep on it. She's like, I'm not going to stop you from, from getting a boat. And so that night, I remember I wrote a check, probably like one of the last checks. Does anybody write checks anymore? I don't know. Um, but I wrote a check out for the amount of this boat, and she said, you know, if you sleep on it and pray about it, if you wake up in the morning and you still feel really good about it, go and get, go and get this boat. 
And so I went to sleep, and I remember I woke up at about 2 o'clock in the morning, and I couldn't go back to sleep, which now at 45 years old is a very common occurrence for me, but um, at 27 wasn't quite as, as common. And uh, so I woke up and couldn't go back to sleep, and I had this weird experience that, you know, you might think happens to pastors all the time, but it, it doesn't, at least for me, is that I had this strong inclination to go and read the Bible at 2 o'clock in the morning. I mean, it was like nothing I'd ever experienced before. Like, I could not do it. And so I got up, and I went to the living room, and I grabbed the Bible, and I opened it. And no kidding, this is like what I randomly opened it to, was Ecclesiastes 5, 10 through 12, which says, Those who love money will never have enough. How meaningless to think that wealth brings true happiness. The more you have, the more people come to help you spend it. So what good is wealth except perhaps to watch it slip through your fingers? People who work hard sleep well, whether they eat little or much, but the rich seldom get a night's sleep. And it undid me <laughs> in that moment. And here's what I heard the Lord say. I heard him say, look here, Gabe. I want you to pay attention to your heart in this moment because I see you and I see what you've experienced and I want to meet you in that place and this is not the way that I want to handle it. And I, I knew what I had to do and I went in the bedroom and I ripped up the check and I didn't buy the boat because I heard that message so clearly, look here. And you know, our passage today starts exactly the same way. James says, look here. In verse 1, what follows? Look here, you rich people. Okay, we need to stop there because, again, there's probably not many of us that think of ourselves in that way of, of being rich people. And certainly the people that James is writing to are first century Jewish Christians who are scattered throughout the Roman world. And certainly not many of them would have identified with being rich. And so what is it that he's saying? Who is it that he's writing to? You know, he's, he's actually talking to the Christians who are, for the most part, impoverished and poor, but he's talking to them about other people that are outside of the kingdom of God, that are in the culture, in the context. He's talking about rich landowners who controlled much of the world at that time through their wealth. Why is he doing this? I think there's really two reasons. Um, the first reason, the first purpose that he's saying, look here, you rich people, is he's saying to the poor Christians, he's saying, hey, when you see rich people, when you see wealth, you're going to be tempted to want that. In the same way I was tempted to look out my window and want that boat, right? Because why? Because you're suffering, because your life is difficult. And you look out at people around you and you see life where people look like they're not suffering, like they have it all together. And so it was with the people that James is writing to. And so the first purpose is actually a consolation. It's actually a comfort. It's saying, hey, I want you to look and see the rich people. And I'm going to talk to you about what happens to people who focus their life on building wealth. And it's not going to end the way you think it ends, and we're going to get into that. So that's purpose number one. Purpose number two is he's writing to predominantly poor Christians, knowing that all human beings, right, are, are wired to, to envy things that they don't have. And also 
that riches and the desire to have wealth will consume your life and overtake it. And you actually don't have to be rich for that to happen in your heart. And so it's a warning that we should not be consumed with materialism. And that if we are, there's consequences for that. And that when, when our life is focused on building and accumulating material things, it doesn't end the way the world says it will end. So the context is, is, is this letter writing to, about rich people to poor people for this particular purpose. Well, then he says this. He says, weep and groan with anguish because of all the terrible troubles ahead of you. And let's just pause there. That's a weird statement, isn't it? That is not what you expect to hear about wealth. Do you associate the ideas of weeping and groaning with wealth? And that's a really important question. What emotions do you feel when you think about accumulating wealth? Well, I can tell you for me, it's not weeping and groaning. Well, this is a theme in, throughout the scriptures, throughout God's story, uh, a theme of contrasting a story of the world with God's bigger story. And at the center of it is often this conversation around wealth. Why? Jesus talks about it all the time. Wealth, money. It's because it has such a grip on our heart. It's so central to our life because we need it, don't we? We have to spend so much of our life making a living. Uh, we, have to, we have to have money, right, to do transactions in the world. And yet, if we fixate on it too much, if we try to find our security in it, if we make that the center of our purpose in life, there's great danger waiting for us. And so for that reason, God says we should weep and we should groan when we think about uh, the accumulation of wealth. Um, there's a great story that Jesus actually tells, uh, and he tells it in Luke's Gospel, uh, chapter 16, verses 19 through 31. And maybe some of you remember this. This is the story of the rich man and Lazarus. And so I want to throw up a painting. I'm a big fan of, of visual arts. I actually majored in, uh, get this, art, philosophy, and literature when I was uh, in college. And I know, like, you know, why would you take that major? The truth is because I'm terrible at math. And it was the major that you had the least math classes. But what I got out of it was a love for art. And so this is a Dutch master from the 16th uh, century, Hendrik uh, Terbruggen. And he does this painting. It's a rendition of this story that Jesus tells. And what Jesus says, he says, you know, there was this, um, there was a poor man, Lazarus, right, who sat outside of a rich man's gate every day. And the rich man, and he doesn't give the rich man's name. He just said the rich man lives in luxury and he like his life is consumed with accumulating possessions and just like satisfying his every desire. And then outside of his luxurious home at the gate, there's this poor guy, Lazarus. Um, and then it says that they, they both die. And, and Lazarus goes uh, and he goes to heaven and he goes to be with the Lord and he's sitting with, with Abraham He's the father of the, of the Jewish faith. And it says the rich man went to hell. And, and Jesus is telling this story, and he says that they, they actually, the, the, the rich man sees Lazarus in the afterlife, right? And he sees him, and he sees the great chasm that's between him, and he's suffering now anguish. Why? Because he wasted his life. Because his life was focused on himself, it was focused on accumulating material things, that in his life he forgot God's bigger story, and there was a consequence, an eternal consequence, for living without regard for God in the world. And he realizes this, but it's too late, and he says, couldn't, couldn't I just, 
just couldn't I speak with, with Lazarus? I see him over there. Couldn't he just come and offer me a cool dr- drop of water because I'm parched and I'm suffering in the heat and the anguish of, of hell? And then, um, you know, the angel says, no, um, you, I won't let you do that. Um, and he says, well, won't you at least send someone to warn my family about the consequences? And then Jesus says something really fascinating. He says, uh, you know, I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to send a warning because your family's already been warned in the same way that all of humanity has been warned. And he says that if you won't listen to the law and the prophets, you wouldn't even pay attention even if someone were to rise from the dead. And it's an interesting story because we know, right, that someone did rise from the dead. And his name was Jesus. And we have this greater story of God in the world and what he has done. But here's my question for you. As you look at this painting, you see Lazarus in the foreground, the poor man in rags, clearly suffering, the dogs licking his wounds. And then you have, in the background, you have the rich man, which you see his face is blurred out. But you can see that he's, he's got fine clothes and good food and friends, and he looks like he's living a great life. So my question is this. When you look at this painting, who are you drawn to? Who are you drawn to? Who do you want to be in the painting? When you look at it, do you say, you know what, I, I really want to like, do life in a way that I end up like Lazarus with no clothes, with dogs licking my wounds? Or do you say, you know what, I really want to do life in such a way that I end up as one of the guys at the back table whose every need is satisfied, who's comfortable, who's without a care in the world? My point is this, what we're drawn to when it comes to accumulation of material things and wealth is a huge indication of where our heart is, right? And as I've sat with this all week, I don't like my answer if I'm going to be honest with you. So if I'm being really honest with you, I'm not drawn to be Lazarus, right? I'm drawn to be the comfortable guy in the back. I don't want to suffer. I don't want to be without. I, I want to do my life and my finances in, in such a way that I ensure that I don't end up as this indigent guy on the front row. And I think that's true of, of most of us. But James shocks us, and we have to catch the shocking nature of what he says. He says, Instead of being drawn to be the rich guy in the background, it says, actually, when we see the rich guy in the background, if we're thinking from God's perspective, if we're thinking with his bigger story in mind, that we ought to weep and we ought to groan. Why? Because of all the terrible troubles ahead for the rich. Now, this is not a simple condemnation of being wealthy, and I just want to point that out. There's nothing wrong with having possessions, there's nothing wrong with working hard and, and earning money, right, and, and having that. Here's the point. What is wrong is to be possessed by our possessions. It's wrong to live a life with the accumulation of wealth as a central organizing activity of your life. To put it in a short way, it's wrong for, if your identity is tied up in your accumulation of wealth. And that is so much the story of the world. 
is that, you know what, just fixate your life, make your life about accumulating things because life will turn out well for you that way, but not so in the story of God. In the story of God, wealth can be an obstacle or a noise to the actual work of discipleship. Well, James continues along, and, and he wants to unpack, like, what does this really mean? What does this really look like in God's bigger story? What is the story of wealth that we ought to really orient towards? And, and so the verse continues. He says, your wealth is rotting away, and your fine clothes are moth-eaten rags. Your gold and silver are corroded. The very wealth you were counting on will eat away your flesh like fire, the, the corroded treasure you have hoarded will testify against you on the day of judgment. And again, remember, he's talking to people outside of the kingdom of God, he's talking about people outside of the kingdom of God who have oriented their life on the accumulation of material things, that that is the central organizing activity of their life, that is their identity and what their life is all about. And he says, you want to know truth in God's bigger story, not the world story about wealth. Here's truth number one, is that your wealth is rotting away. It will not last. It will not last. And we know this, but do we live truly in light of this? When we look at our 401k, when we look at our home, when we look at the things that we have, is our first thought, you know what, these are temporary things that won't last and if I'm going to be really honest with you today, I'm going to tell you that is not my first reaction to my things. You know, I, I don't first think that the house I'm living in is someone else is eventually going to live in. You know, I work on it and I pay it off and I think about it on a day-in, day-out basis as something that I'll just have, right? But God says truth number one is our wealth will not last. It will rot away. And, and it's provocative language. And, you know, if you think back about that painting, he says, those fine clothes that, that you've collected, they're just moth-eaten rags. Your gold and your silver, your currency, the thing that's the most valuable to you in the, in the world are just going to be corroded and rusty. And here's the kicker. He says, the very wealth you were counting on, how many of us count on our wealth? How many of us think, you know what, if I can just get enough, then I'll be secure. I'll feel secure in my life if I have this much in my bank account. If, if, if I really like do life in a correct way and I fixate on it enough, then I can count on this wealth and then my life will be secure and then I can do the work that really matters. But God says, actually, this is truth number two, is that wealth is not something that we can count on. And so when we think about accumulating material things, we ought to realize that these are not things that should be the basis of our security and of our life. And then he says something really difficult. He says that actually these things, for the wealthy outside of the kingdom, um, for people who don't know the Lord, who's, who fixated their life on accumulating things, says these things will actually eat away at your flesh like fire. Again, provocative imagery. You know, that's an image of death and of pain and of suffering. And he's saying, when we think of accumulating wealth, when we think of fixation on accumulating material things, we ought to think of pain and suffering and death instead of life and security. This corroded treasure you have hoarded. So again, the orientation is he's talking to people who hoard, who store up, 
who think this is what life is all about, says all of those things will testify against you on the day of judgment. And just, just a word here, in God's bigger story, and we don't, I don't think we talk about this enough in the church, in God's bigger story, um, the end of the story is not that you die if you believe in Jesus and then you just go to heaven and you just sit somewhere in heaven with God. That's not the end of the story. The end of God's story, we're told in the book of Revelation, is actually that heaven comes to earth. That the king, the Lord Jesus, the one who died on the cross for our sins, it says when he died and then he, three days later when he was resurrected, that was the inauguration of a new kingdom. That he came into the world as the first true resurrected human and then he returned to the father, but he didn't return to the father forever. It says one day he will come again. And it says when he comes again, he comes this time as a, as a king and he comes as a judge, and he comes to take over and make all things new. And that is the end of the story. And that's what ought to give us great hope and great joy. And so the orientation of our story, of our work, of our things, ought to live in light of this bigger story that we remember every single day, that there's a king who's coming back to claim what is his. That there's a king coming back to take over and make all things new once again. And that it will be for those who follow the Lord, who have been his disciples, who have oriented their lives on following him. It will be a great and a glorious day. Because on that day, our suffering will make sense. On that day, Lazarus, who did without but followed the Lord, will finally have his reward. And so it's true for you and I. But friends, we get caught in a smaller story and it's a smaller story of the world and it's a compelling story and we're drawn into it on every ad that we see every time we walk into the shopping mall, every time we see what our neighbors have and we long for it, every time we think about, you know what, if I just had this or I had that or if I had this in my bank account, then I would finally have made it and I'll be secure and my life would make sense and I would matter. But that is not the truth of God's story for you. The truth of God's story is that he will come to make all things new and that he's called you to live a life of sacrifice, to live a life of fixation on him and to realize that everything that you have is temporary and that you are an owner of nothing. Did you know that? You are an owner of nothing in God's kingdom. We are stewards. We've been entrusted to care for things for a temporary amount of time until the true owner of the vineyard comes back to claim what is his. What is the story that you're living in when it comes to wealth? I would submit to you, if you looked at that picture and you're really honest with yourself and you said, I'm really drawn to the people who are wealthy, that's me. And I would say, you know what, friends, that's me too. And may we confess and may we reorient our life and may we help each other to remember these truths that our wealth is rotting away, that we're temporary stewards of things and that one day the Lord will return and he will turn, return in judgment. The passage continues. For listen, again, pay attention. Hear the cries of the field workers whom you have cheated of their pay. The cries of those who harvest your fields have reached the ears of the Lord of heaven armies. What is he saying? He's saying, you know, there's another consequence 
when we orient our life and fixate our life on accumulating material things, when that becomes the central organizing principle and activity of our life, not only does it eventually destroy us, not only do the things we accumulate eventually become nothing, but actually in the process, we dehumanize other people too. And this happens every day, doesn't it? And business isn't bad. Again, business isn't bad. Owning things isn't bad, right? Having things isn't a bad thing. But when we fixate and we forget whose things these are and we forget who we are, then the temptation is that we actually uh, make other people characters in our smaller story. And when when I say dehumanize, I mean we do not see and treat people as if they were eternal beings made in the image of God, right? Beloved by him. Instead, we treat them as um, characters in transactions. And the scriptures are clear, and James is clear as that um, when we behave in this way, the Lord hates it, and that he hears the cries of those who are oppressed. Wealth gained through the subjugation and oppression of others is antithetical to the way of the kingdom. God is loving and just, and his heart is for the oppressed, not for the oppressor. The last part of this passage says this, You have spent your years on earth in luxury, satisfying your every desire. You have fattened yourself for the day of slaughter. You have condemned and killed innocent people who do not resist you. And so this is really ought to be a stark warning to us, friends. I want to call your attention to a few words. Spent your years on earth. Do you remember that we only have a limited amount of time? That we are finite beings? Are you aware of that? I often don't live like that. I forget, you know. I go through life like I have eternity. To live in my house and accumulate my things and have my job and keep getting promoted But the truth is that we have a finite amount of time. How will we spend it? Are we spending it trying to be like the world around us, trying to live in increasing luxury, trying to satisfy our every desire? This is a hard teaching because the world all around us says this is what life is all about. If you want something, do everything you can to get it. How will you spend your time? How will you think of money? And it's a shocking statement. It says, for those outside of the kingdom, for those who don't know the Lord Jesus, the natural inclination of the world is to satisfy every desire, but in so doing, the world prepares itself. And this is really hard language for the day of slaughter. Is that you see, for those who are opposed to God, there's only one recourse. And that is death. But God so loved the world that the owner of all things entered into our world and that he modeled the way for us. Think about that for a second. The king who made everything, who owns everything, who made every single one of you became nothing became a poor human being who lived his life in obscurity and poverty. Why? Because he deeply desired for you and for me 
to experience the life that is life, and he wanted to show us the way first. I wish I could tell you that my obsession with boats ended, but it didn't, because like all of us, I'm a very broken person, and you know what they say, the two best days in a boat owner's life, the day that you buy your boat, the day you sell your boat, some of you are laughing because you're like, you've owned a boat and you know. For me, I have a little twist on my story. I didn't buy that boat, but I did keep buying Boat Trader magazine. And to be honest with you, like I, I didn't let go of that obsession because I wasn't mature in my faith at that time. And I kept looking out at those yachts and I kept wanting that boat and I convinced myself that it was okay to do it. And so I bought an even worse boat. There's only thing worse than, than buying a new boat is buying an old boat. Um, and I bought an old boat and it was, a, it was a terrible, actually, decision in my life and it never worked right. And uh, the way that story ended is really funny. Um, I didn't sell the boat, instead my boat sank. <laughs> and so all that to say, when we fixate our lives on accumulating things, it doesn't turn out the way that we think it will. Well, what does this mean for us? Here's the kind of the headline is what, what James says, look here, pay attention. Friends, this is an opportunity to pay attention to your life today, to pay attention to this very important area of your life. How do you think about material things? How do you think about wealth? Your answer to that's extremely important. It's important because if you're thinking about wealth, even just a little bit in the way of the world, guess what that's doing to you? It's robbing you. It's robbing you of the life that is truly life. You see, the greedy, greedy, consuming heart is marked by three things. And I want you to just pay attention to this. Which of these resonate with you? The, the heart that's bent on consuming things is number one, the focus of life is on myself. The focus of life is on myself. Because at the end of the day, that's what James is saying. saying When I put myself as the main character of the story, my desires as, as the main part of the story, then I put myself at the story, and that's not a life that is honoring to God, and it won't turn out the way I think. Number two is that when I, when I live in a way with consumption at the center of my existence, what that says is I'm not ready to be held accountable. I'm not ready to be held accountable, and I think that's why we're so afraid to talk about money in the church, isn't it? We're afraid to talk about that because we don't want to be held accountable. We want to do what we want to do. I don't want you to look at the things I'm buying I don't want to be accountable for those things, and I'm guessing neither do you. But what we're invited into is a bigger story where when we're held accountable for the way that we're spending our money and the way we're thinking about our things, um, that requires a community of faith to come around us to hold one another accountable to a better way. Number three is that the greedy, consuming heart, um, ultimately I dehumanize others to fulfill the desires of my own heart. And, and maybe that's shocking language and you think, well, I'm not, I'm not doing that. But, you know, we, we do it in a subtle way. When we fixate on accumulating things, I'm just telling you, what you do inadvertently is you ignore people and you make them characters in your story and you love them less. And um, that's not God's way. I don't know how all this is hitting you, but here's the bottom line is, is I just want you to, like the Lord said to me, look here. Because the life that Jesus has for you is far better than the one that you can buy for yourself. To Christ be the glory. Amen. Um, I'm going to put a prayer up here. 
And um, I want to invite us to read this prayer out loud together. It's, it's a prayer of confession because I think at the end of this um, teaching, that's the proper response, right? Is grieving and mourning because all of us have gone astray in some way. So as a way of responding to the teaching today, let's just read this together. Lord, expose the ways in which our hearts are inclined to believe the story of the world rather than your big story. Show us where our love of money, our dependence on it, our focus on keeping it and spending it on ourselves is keeping us from experiencing the life of freedom and peace and love that you made for us. Uncover the hidden motivations in our hearts, the fears, the effects of our disobedience, and move us to use everything you have given us to love you and love others. Amen.